Hey y'all, my name is Ann Wyatt. I started my career in workforce development with the state of Kentucky in 2010. That experience ignited a deep passion for manufacturing within me. I started this show hoping to raise more awareness around the bright outlook manufacturing careers have. Join me as I sit down with some of the manufacturing industry's most successful change makers and learn how they're partnering people with technology. It's time to give people more meaningful work. This is Workforce 4.0. Hey guys, how are you? It's so good to be here today. I'm super stoked to have uh, this week's guest on the show, Ray Atia. Ray, big welcome to you. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you? Well, thank you for having me in. Uh, tell me about myself. Wow, where do I start? I think I already told you I'm a father of three daughters, teenage daughters who now can drive. I started my career in manufacturing with Johnson & Johnson, implementing Industry 3.0. So that was the old school, you know, computer integrated manufacturing, which was ERP. Again, I went to school for engineering. I became in manufacturing management career path. I was a third ship supervisor, became director of operations at a very early age, and then started my manufacturing improvement training business when I was 26. Since then, I have acquired a technology business, started a manufacturing firm or company during the Great Recession, and basically, you know, an author of basically everything fearless to really create a fearless front line. That's amazing. Well, that's quite fearless to start in a manufacturing operations firm during the Great Recession. That's for sure. Absolutely. And for those of you joining us for the live today, we have a special show today because Ray did write a top-ranked business book called Run, Improve, Grow. I have my copy here. And he is willing to give uh, one of our lucky viewers a signed copy of his book today, which is sold out on Amazon. So that's the only way you can get a copy of this book is through Ray Atia himself. So really stoked to be giving that away and really excited and anxious to see who, who's going to end up with that. Yeah, and I'm going to be super jelly. We'll give him this book right here. <laughs> Awesome. Perfect. Right from the bookshelf. Exactly. Very cool. Well, before we get started into more of a fearless front line and a fearless culture, you know, Ray, it's just a tradition. So I've got to ask you, what is your go-to karaoke song or your favorite song? Because we all know that I'm a huge fan of music. It's, it's so important to me. Well, watching your other episodes, I knew you were going to ask that question. So I'm big into, you know, dance music. So I love dance music, anything with a good beat. But then I thought, okay, that's some of those dance songs really don't work well with karaoke. So that's which, which is my karaoke. So on my Pandora playlist, I actually have the Bee Gees as uh, one of my um, stations. And there's a number of BG songs like Staying Alive and a couple others. But I thought, you know what? One song that comes up often are songs from Greece, from the movie Greece. So the song that I have is You're the One That I Want. And the ending uh, song of the movie, if you remember it, when they're at the amusement park and he comes in with his Rydell, you know, letter sweater after running track because he really wanted the girl. 
and he was willing to do anything he could to really roll out the red carpet, as you say, in recruiting for her. And so that would be the song I would add to my karaoke list. I love that. First of all, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Grease. I not only love the movie, but I've seen the musical on Broadway. Huge fan. And that is such a good song. I love that. I love that whole scene where they're dancing and Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. Oh, that's so, that's awesome. That's the number of them, Sandy or Summer Loving or... The Hand Dive. That's a good one. That's right. And uh, Grease Lightning. Go Grease Lightning. I love that. I was Um, announcing the song in the background, but I didn't know what copyright, how much we're allowed to use for copyright. So, you know, but, you know, and I'm not a very good singer, so I'll just not even try. You're the one that I want. (laughs) Honey, I love that. Okay. Awesome. So, Ray, I've got to ask. So you're infamous for building a fearless culture and a fearless front line. Can you tell us in your own words what that really means to you? So fearless to me is being authentic and instinctive to take action. Um, If we flip it around the other way, what does a fearful culture look like? So a fearful culture is one where people uh, are afraid to bring up ideas or worse, afraid to take action on them. They don't know if they're allowed to make decisions. So if you take the antithesis of that and saying, okay, when we hire people, they believe that they're empowered. They believe that they're going to be supported, whether they, whatever they do works or doesn't work. And then they know that they're working in an environment that supports them. So a fearless culture really is one where senior leadership trusts the front line, where senior leadership believes that people are there to do good work and What we do is basically we give them the authority from the beginning to take action. Now, some people will say, well, well, we can't just let them just do whatever they want. So good. So give me the rules of what I'm not allowed to do. So fearless cultures have very clear rules of what you're not allowed to do. And then you're allowed to do everything else. So I remember the Porsche CEO was in Cincinnati many years ago and he spoke to a group. This is probably 20 years ago. And I remember his him talking about the difference between cultures between the U.S. and Germany. And he says, the difference between the U.S. and Germany, he says, in the U.S., everything's allowed unless it's forbidden. And then he says, and then there's Germany where everything's forbidden unless it's allowed. And he says, and then there's Italy where everything's allowed, especially that is forbidden. So what he was trying to say is, you know, we have, we live in a culture and a society where basically you're allowed to be entrepreneurs. You're allowed to be yourself. We're going to give you a set of rules that you're not allowed to, you know, break. Otherwise you are allowed to uh, do as you wish. So when I look at a fearless culture, a fearless culture has a big box. So you've heard the term think outside the box, right? Well, the reason why we ask people to think outside the box in most organizations is because they put people into small boxes. And then they ask them to break the rules and think outside the box. Well, why don't you just start with a bigger box? Why don't you give them more authority from the beginning? And why do they have to break the rules to actually be productive and innovative? So a fearless culture is one that supports my trials, 
has good and believes me that I have good intent and is one that allows me to own my success because people take ownership to what they create. And if they're not allowed to create it on the front line, then the ownership is owned by others. And then I'm not going to have the same level of commitment to keeping it from, you know, how do we sustain it, but also how do we continuously improve it? So truly a fearless culture is one that truly believes in people. And when we say the term, you know, we make people number one and the customer number two, they truly believe that and they act on it on a consistent basis. Absolutely. I mean, that's just a lot to unpack. And, you know, I'm thinking definitely more about boxes, right? And how, you know, just make it a bigger box. I mean, that seems so simple, right? Just so simple and so obvious. But I think that gets lost along the way. When you're talking about... and easy and not always the same thing. So it's simple. Golf is a simple game, but it's not easy. So I think there's a beauty of it, of how do you make it simple? Because making things simple, like my phone, my iPhone is simple for me to use, but it's a complex device. So I think this requires intentional design. You know, this is probably where my industrial engineering natural talents come in. So you're building an intentional organization that has these principles in it that appear to be simple to the user, but behind it, it's rather complex, which is good. Now, complex complexity is good complicated is bad but but to make it simple it actually requires a significant amount of design thinking exactly and i really i love the engineering application of design thinking as an hr function exactly um, that's yes we i you know i'm an evangelist on that i love that whole philosophy but that's neither neither here nor there you know something that you just said though that really stuck out to me was the word empowerment we we use that word so often in the industry on this platform linkedin and other places you know we are always dropping that empowerment right what does empowerment mean to you because it's such an intangible concept right what's you know, what does empowerment in a tangible sense look like to you? Do I have the power to make the decision? Very simple. Simple enough. Yeah. Am I, am I empowered to make that decision without having to go ask for permission, without having to worry that I'm not going to be supported? When you truly believe that you can do that, then you become fearless. When you're not, when you don't believe that you have the power, then you're not empowered. You know, so when, you know, you visited Upside Innovations, that was the manufacturing company we started during the downturn. And I remember the employees were empowered to make a decision on their tools, on their work gloves. And I remember uh, a huddle that occurred where Danny, the supervisor, spent 15 minutes just showing them different samples of welding gloves. 15 minutes. And everybody was engaged. And they said, you know, pick two, you know, we could end up with two. We don't need 20. We don't need one, but this is what's touching their hands all day long. You know, they were empowered to make that decision. And again, that's just a simple one, but, you know, are you able to make the decision on, you know, telling a customer, I'm sorry, but we don't want to work with you anymore because you don't treat our, 
employees very well. You know, are you truly empowered to make that decision? Absolutely. That's, that's interesting. And, you know, coming from a candidate perspective, a job seeker perspective, if, if I were going to entertain a new opportunity or what have you, maybe my position has grown a little stale. There's not as much growth there. I think that there are ways that maybe you can also look for signs when you're interviewing with a company that kind of leads to that empowerment or if they are more of a people-centered culture. That's something that we had kind of talked about before the show today. But what do you or how do you think that individuals that are seeking new opportunities, um, how what's the best way for them to vet potential employers during their interview process? So there's three things that I think they can do. Uh, but before I cover those three tips, let me first describe the three tip, three types of organizations that I think that they'll run into. So they'll run into the type of organization that I believe in, which is a fearless culture that believes in their people and builds, as you said, the HR design systems and their talent systems support that. Okay. So they believe in people and their management and leadership systems support that. And again, man, we manage systems and processes when we lead people. So that's one type of organization. Another one is one that does not believe in people. You know, they don't believe in empowering people. Decisions are made uh, by a certain select number of people and they build their systems around that. But they're, you know, unapologetic. They believe in it and they're consistent with that. Okay. And that's a different type of organization. And actually, you're going to find this hard to believe, but I actually respect those organizations that commit to that. I've seen them be wildly successful in their business. Now, their challenge is going to be maintaining and engaging and retaining talent, the top talent people. But I've seen organizations do that. The third group of organizations are the most dangerous. And that is what I call the hypocrites. They're the ones who say they believe in people, but deep down inside, they don't. And when you really push comes to shove, their business, their business systems or principles or leadership systems or management systems basically go against those fearless principles. So they say one thing, but they really believe something else. So those are the ones you have got to vet out and watch out for. Now, there's some people who want the second group. Hey, I just want a paycheck. I just want to go to work. You know, for example, I mean, I'll tell you, my wife, when she was working years ago at Chiquita, she cared about volunteering and working in children's hospital or volunteering there. Or thing. So she just wanted a, a good job. She didn't need like certain things. So she wanted a place where I knew I was done at six o'clock or 530. I can go and so forth. So some for, for some people, that's what they want. Okay. For others, you want, you know, innovation and engagement. So the three tips that I would tell them to do, you know, number one is do your research. So one is, you know, by finding who used to work there, you know, who used to work there and not just read the reviews online on Glassdoor Indeed, but read the wording of what people say. And, you know, for example, uh, I, I just read a review recently of a company that had some very positive ones, but then underneath it, it says, don't make your employees or care about your values when it's convenient for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, so th there's, there's a tip there, you know, again, I'm a 
poker player. So I look for those tells. Okay. So you're looking for those tells. And then if they, what they brag about mostly are pizza parties and t-shirts, you know, but there's no substance behind it, you know, looks, you know, from a style, but there's no substance behind it. What you're really looking for is caring. Do people, you know, how do they feel? Is there, are they, do they, are they cared about? You know, the other one is look for evidence when you're meeting with the people and making sure that you're talking to people on the front line, not just in senior leadership. And, you know, one of the questions I like to ask people is how does this job compare to what you expected? And mm -hmm. not how's it going, but how does it compare to what you expected? And that's when you get a little bit of the ho-hums, mm, you know, on a positive note, you know, one of the people who joined Upside, uh, I asked her that question. How does it compare to what you expected? She's like, wow, it's much better than I expected. And she said, I try to do my reviews, you know, looking for reviews online. And I realized why I couldn't find any. She said, because nobody quits. And, you know, so she was trying to do her due diligence, but, you know, that tells you something. And then the, th so when you're asking those questions to the folks is making sure you're asking the questions, people who are doing the work is, you know, you know, what improvements would you make that would allow people to make better decisions? What decisions are you able to make uh, here compared to other places? And then the final one is, you know, asking very piercing questions. So there's lazy questions and there's piercing questions. Lazy questions. How many employees do you have? What are your goals and objectives? You know, piercing questions is, for example, what am I not allowed to do? And not only listen for the answer, but also listen how they respond to that answer. So what you're looking for is you're looking for their temperament. You know, are they like, mm. you know, so, you know, at my old company, my training company, I told people there's two things you're not allowed to change. You can't adjust pricing. You can't adjust our strategy. Other than that, you're allowed to go. So I was very clear with what you're not allowed to do. Now, you could be part of those discussions, but you can't just do them, you know, on your own. But they were clear that everything else they're allowed to do. And then that gives some clear cut boundaries, right? It was a big box. People know what to expect, right? You know, there's well, some people speaking... that there's some people who could not work in that big box because they like to have a smaller box and so forth. So there's some people who actually struggled with that big box because they like that, you know, very structured and very defined. So those would be the three things I would say is basically, you know, research ahead of time, talk to the people who are doing the work, you know, your own due diligence, but ask piercing questions and don't listen, just listen to the answer but listen to the, you know, the way that they answer and then ask for evidence. Give me an example of where somebody made a mistake and how was that supported? Because you're looking for an organization that wants to experiment and try. That's what, I mean, right, right now, right now the, the, what, what organizations are competing on isn't who has the most best knowledge or the best people, it's how fast are we learning? So it's a rate at which we're learning that makes the organization successful in the future. I mean, you've got people who talk about growth mindset. You know, you got a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And it's amazing when you talk to people who say they want a growth mindset and then you challenge them with something and they, they quickly shut down and say, nope, what we're doing is working. All right. 
you know, back to that third group of people who say one thing, but actually believe something else. Right. It's all about consistency too, Correct. you know, they believe in people. So when, when, when there's nobody in the room other than senior leaders, how do they talk about the front line? Do they talk with respect and dignity and honor or do they talk about them like they're, you know, brainless and, you know, we've got to do all the thinking for them. Right. Well, speaking of boxes, and this may have answered a little bit, bit of this, Hank, but Hank is wondering how many people can even define what the box is. And that's a great uh, question, Hank, because there has to be a starting point to all this, right? If you're going to think about making a bigger box, you know, you kind of want to think about defining what what the box is. So what do, what do you say to that, Ray? So that's a great point. So I think this is, again, back to that HR design or business design of getting the organization to agree on that. And what the problem often exists is you've got different factions in the organization that don't agree on that box. You know, so you've got, you know, one set of managers who believe in people and you got another set who don't and you got one group who's risk averse. And unfortunately, as an organization matures, they go from entrepreneurial to structured, to disciplined, to professional. And what happens is when you go in that structured phase, that's when the boxes are clearly defined and they're small and they're clear. And then they use the word accountability a lot in a negative way. So those boxes become very defined. And what happens then is you end up losing your best talent because they're like, wait a second, we're regressing. So that's a good point, Hank, which is, you know, it's not only can they define it, but are we then, can, as you use the word consistent, do we agree on what that is? You know, it's no different than service level agreements. Do we agree on what the lead time is when somebody buys our product? The HR systems are one of the most grossly underdefined areas, except when it comes to compliance. That you said what I want to say. <laughs> you said what I want. You said what I want to say, but can't. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. They got the compliance box checklist because you know oh, yeah. what happens when you mess up. You get your hand slapped, you get sued. You know exactly what happens. What you don't understand is the benefit of starting with that fearless culture in that box. And that's what I've been fortunate to see and watch over 20 plus years working a million man hours amongst my team, work with hundreds of clients and thousands of manufacturing leaders. I've seen what happens when you create a culture of, I run this place. When you have a culture that the front line believes I run this place, you can do amazing things. Absolutely. And I've seen good, I've seen good in recruiting in my years of recruiting. I've seen good examples and, and bad examples of both. And, you know, upside, for example, is, is a perfect example. They have a waiting list to apply if anybody's wondering. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're looking for a job at up, upside there in Cincinnati, Ohio, there is a waiting list. Well, I'll tell you the <laughs> new salesperson just started there in the last, and he, he was in there six weeks. Maybe it wasn't even that long. I think he, his last text to me was he already closed a number of jobs and he's only been there a couple of weeks. Let me see what he, but basically are you building an or are you building a system 
you know, six sales under his belt. And that was July 29th. And he had started weeks before that. So they built a system and he started June 24th. So in a month, what that means is they build a system that allows them to succeed. Mm -hmm. You know? So I think when you're building, so as leaders, our job is to build the systems for them to succeed. You know, again, I'm an industrial engineer. I look at all the failures as management problems. And if we don't build the systems for them to succeed, you know, I don't think we've lost a salesperson there since 2014, 2015, which is like ridiculous. I know. For sales, that is a long time. Correct. Because <laughs> yep. that, that's, that's a long time. Well, the, also because the operations delivers, you know, so again, you don't look bad. You can make and deliver on bold promises, you know, chapter five, six of the book, right? Make and deliver on bold promises. And one of the best, you know, for most companies or manufacturers, they're B2B. One of the best brand builders is making and delivering on promises. And as a salesperson, when you know you've got an operation that can deliver on that, that just makes your credibility and your job easier. Absolutely. So on the flip side of that, you know, from, from going from the uh, individual perspective to the company perspective, why do you feel as though manufacturing industry could be lacking in an engaged workforce? That's kind of switching gears just a little bit. All right. Um, but just your thoughts, you know, so I'm an engineer. I've hired a lot of engineers. I've hired a lot of operations managers. What makes somebody a great manufacturing leader is they're highly intelligent and they're a great problem solver. And the problem with that is that they often lack empathy, but often see it as their job to be the problem solver. And what happens is they don't think about the human element when it comes to the people side. I remember one good friend client of mine, Jason Lockwood, said is when we own the run, we're taking an opportunity away from somebody else to grow and develop. So the temperament of manufacturing leaders often becomes the barrier. So their strength actually becomes a negative, which is you're a problem solver. So your job is not necessarily to solve the problems. Your job is to build more problem solvers. I think the other element is overly depend upon technology. So we look for technology as a solution and don't understand the integration of, you know, again, you know, my early days, I was, you know, industry 3.0, I was working with UPS implementing the first computerized clipboards. And I remember introducing it to people who've never even touched a computer or had an ATM card. When I was at Johnson and Johnson putting in the first computer integrated manufacturing. So you have to kind of recognize that this is new to people that have been successful for many years but didn't need this technology. So you have to kind of go into it with a high level of empathy. Um, I think that's one big element. The other element of manufacturing, it's interesting because I have a daughter who's working at Chipotle. Well, to me, that's a manufacturing process. You've got a tube in system for the Pinto and the black beans and the rice, and mm -hmm. you've got this assembly line. And then you've got, now you've got the mobile versus that. And she comes home a couple of weeks ago. She's talking about throughput. And I'm like, oh, bless her heart. She's talking about throughput. It said, you know, that's what daddy went to school for. But the what's different between working at Chipotle versus working uh, in manufacturing is one of them. And you said this in your five tips in your video, 
flexibility. Manufacturing is, a, is very inflexible when it comes to people's schedule. So for example, at Upside, people can come in anytime between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. to start work. I mean, how many manufacturers give people that two-hour window? Hey, if you want overtime, come on in. If you have something going on with your kids, that's fine. So it's a highly, so manufacturing is inflexible. They've got systems and they got standards and they got this and this. And, that. and I actually tried to avoid getting a time clock in the shop, but I was, that's where the compliance comes in. It's like, okay, well, you know what, <laughs> you know, exempt and non-exempt. And, you know, I'm like, well, can I really do it? And finally somebody said, no, the law requires you to do that. So you've got to have one. But I, yes. but I want to have the same culture for the office as I do for the shop. And one thing we did, if you notice, when you walk through, there was no carpeting, you know, we had the same, you know, you know, and I actually wanted to have no wall between it, but the noise was probably going to be too much. And we're a startup, so I couldn't afford thick glass at that point. But I think those are some of the barriers is really our belief, our temperament. And again, there's ways for you to build this flexible, caring culture. And again, Upside was intended to be an experiment. It was intended to show Run, Improve, Grow work. So everybody's like, oh, this is good in theory. All right. There's a real manufacturing company and they've grown, you know, ever since from the inception in 2009. And my partner, Kevin Sharp, has been basically implementing Run, Improve, Grow from day one. Yeah, it is uh, truly where the rubber meets the road. That is, that is uh, for sure. I have a couple of questions here from the audience, if it's okay to bring those up really quickly. Great. Okay, perfect. Chris is here. He says, usually it takes two to tango, agreeing with everything you mentioned about a healthy people-centered organization. What do you believe the worker has to bring to the table in contributing and creating uh, to this healthy environment? Or is the worker not involved at all? I think that's a really good question. A great point. Absolutely. It takes two to tango. As we saw from uh, Greece, it takes two to dance, right? Right. So what I believe, and this is what I've seen firsthand, is you're building your system around your top performers. And the top performers have to bring curiosity. They have to be willing to try new things. They have to also be willing to say, I don't know, have be willing to learn and grow. And I think that, you know, one of the questions I used to ask people when I interview them is because I'm looking for their ability to learn new things. And I'm hiring top players to come in and work with these companies. So I'm looking for somebody who is humble enough to say, uh, I need more place to, to, to grow and I can learn. So one of my favorite questions is in the last two years, what skills did you not know two years ago that you've just developed? And I'm looking for somebody who can say that, you know, here's something I didn't know two years ago and I've worked on. Uh, and I, I kid you not. Okay. This is a real story. I'm interviewing a vice president of distribution for Coleman down in Wichita, Kansas. And I'm working, walking through the warehouse with this gentleman. This is over a decade ago. So nobody's going to remember who I'm talking about. And the gentleman was probably a foot taller than I was. I mean, he was almost seven feet tall. He was a big guy. And we're walking through a dim warehouse where the lighting was dim because, you know, it was controlled by four truck movement. And I built a hypothesis in my head and I said, this guy is probably very experienced, but not very intelligent. And my concern was that 
if he becomes director of distribution, VP of distribution, he's going to prevent his team from growing and learning because of his own limitations. So I asked him that question. That was the first time I ever asked that question. I built a question. I asked it as we we're walking through. And I said, what are the skills that you learned in the last two years that you didn't know prior? And kid you not, he looks at me, looks down at me. He says, Ray, I know it all. He said, I've learned nothing because I know it all. So I went to the, seriously. So I went to the uh, operating officer and president. I wasn't sure if you were frozen or if you were just in shock, but I was too. Uh, shock. Yes. Yeah, so I went to the president and the chief operating officer and I said, his sponge is full. Okay. So back to Chris's question, takes two to tango. Yes. Do you want somebody who's willing to grow, willing to be willing to say, I don't know. Vulnerability is one of the greatest elements of leadership in a fearless culture. We just had a tour. I know Will attended this tour over at Bielstein and they talked about their industry 4.0 technology and robots and how they got started and automated guided vehicles and so forth. And people asked them, how did you get started? And one of the things I interrupted and I had to say, I said, well, here's the one thing that we're not talking about is the leader, Fabian Schmall, created an organization that was comfortable being vulnerable of saying, we don't know as leaders. If the leadership can't say, we don't know, then you could forget about, you know, building a fearless culture because then they're smarter than everybody else. They already thought about it and we don't need your thinking. So back to your comment, Chris, when you hire people, you have to be willing to also hire people who are vulnerable, who says, I've got more room to grow and I'm willing to learn. And may, my way may not be the best way. And by the way, Run, Improve, Grow is over 200 companies connected together. It's taking the best out of this one and the best out of this one and the best out of the one had a great innovation. One had a great you know, culture. One had a great systems. One had great strategies. And you put them together. It says, this is what a complete system looks like. So it's not Ray, it's multiple companies together that collaborated on this together over 20 plus years. Absolutely. Rhiannon has a question about safety. How do you think safety for mistake-making enters into this? It seems related to the compliance issue. I so, think it's related. What do you think, Ray? It is, I'll tell you. So safety is a value, not a priority. So at Upside, we made safety a value because priorities change, but values don't. So when you make safety and the care of the employees, so when you talk about it in your employee manuals, you don't talk about safety rules. You talk about the fact that when people come to work, we want them to return home the same way they came to work. So when I explain, you know, why do we have to have drug tests? Why do we have to have the safety shoes? Why do we have to have this? We explain it through a story that explains why we care about our people. Why do we care? I mean, everybody coming here is a mom and a dad or a sister or brother or son or daughter. We want them to return home. So when, you know, we know that everybody around us is safe, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the curtains and so forth. And also, you know, at Bielstein, for example, you know, when they built their industry 4.0, safety was a huge part of that because it was, it was, kind of almost part of the DNA. One of the challenges for manufacturing is, you know, moms look at, you know, manufacturing and say it's not safe. I'll I'll tell you, right now my mom, my wife is telling my daughter not to work on the the fryer at Chipotle. 
because she doesn't think it's safe for her as at 16 years old. So we have to show that we've factored in the safety elements. And let me show you the safety elements we put in place because the perception of manufacturing being dirty and unsafe is still there. It's still there. And rightly so, because there are a number, you know, 69% of manufacturers have less than 30 employees. You can walk into the most advanced ones. Yes, that's good and so forth, but that doesn't represent the majority of manufacturers. So I, I still think there's a, a long way to go to break that, especially in the smaller manufacturing companies. Excellent. That is a great segue into our final question for today, which is all about engagement and really your safety answer as well. But I named this episode, The Future of Work is Fearless. Why do you think we have not taken action in making these cultural changes that can be holding us back as an industry? Or rather, in your words, why do you feel like we lack the courage to do so? So, you know, when I look at, so one of them is power. One of them is the fear of the senior leaderships to give up that power and allow others to make decisions. Uh, manufacturing is so well established of having standards and systems and, you know, service level agreements and drawings and fixtures and tools that it's highly controlled. And that level of control and standardization becomes a temperament of the leaders. So the leaders who've taken over those companies, the owners and the senior leaders, that's where they come from. They come from that level of control. And so for them, for many of them, they've never seen the benefit of a fearless culture. So that's one of the reasons why we built the fearless factory was not to say it, but show it. Come and see it, you know, come and see how Danny runs the daily huddles and the employees are empowered to make these decisions. So there's a big element, which is kind of basically the power that I have to give it up. I have to trust others. So the, the other piece of that is the people run those organizations, do they truly believe in people? But the bigger one I think is even more uh, impactful is they don't understand the implications of not doing it. As organizations grow, when they're small, they're incentivized to take risks. When they become larger, they're incentivized to avoid risk. So until recently, until you really, really, really have a labor challenge, it was optional. I think it's becoming more mandatory that you know engagement is no longer an ex, um, uh, optional one. It's, it's mandatory if you wanna grow. The number one limiter to growth for most manufacturers, for most small businesses is not the market opportunity, it's management capacity. And when management realizes that the more they empower, the more it liberates them, then they see they will do that. But they also need a proof. You know, you're gonna have, you know, as the cross and the chasm element, you've got the early adopters, you've got the visionaries, the early adopters, the pragmatic, conservative, and skeptics. You're never gonna win over a skeptics, forget them, okay? You've already got, you know, the people who are pragmatic who says it's a good business decision. The next group is the conservative. And I think the conservatives are one who needs more proof. 
you know, as Ben Armstrong on one of your prior podcasts said, you know, what do you say? Only half, what was it? Only half of manufacturers actually have a robot or 10% have a robot. And of those, half of them only have one. Yes. So they're slow. So manufacturing is one of the slowest organizations when it comes to adopting new change, you know, compared to technology companies, compared to financial service firms, compared to retail it's slow like molasses and the companies that can figure this out will have a competitive advantage. So I'd say to all that, you know, it's the temperament of the leadership uh, in most manufacturing companies. They are engineers. They need to understand it. They need to have data to support it, but they also, many of them just don't believe in the human power. Now, this is the one point I'll make here. In the book, I talk about this. Build your systems around your top performers. If you build your systems around your weakest performers, then you could prove that an engaged workforce does not work. You're right. So don't. What I find is when you build your systems around your top performers, magic happens. And I think that's the, if you take 10% of your workforce and you said, I'm gonna build a brand new division, would I apply the same systems and processes? I mean, every policy has been put in place because somebody screwed something up. But every one of those policies is a speed hump. You ever see speed humps in neighborhoods? Absolutely. It slows everybody down. And why did we put those in place? Because a small number of people drove very fast. The difference in organizations, unlike society, is you can weed out those people. So it's a choice. Do we choose to build our systems around our poor performers or do we choose to build our systems around our top performers? And that's the choice. I think in manufacturing, especially with the labor market being the way that it is, we're really being forced to look at right now. It's definitely the elephant in the room. Excellent. Well, this has been such an amazing experience. I really appreciate your time today. I think we should move on to the giveaway before oh, yes. we close out. What do you think, Greg? I think it's great. And by the way, thank you all for your questions. And Anne, thank you so much for having me uh, on your show. This has been awesome. Absolutely. This is such a good book. Again, I have highlighted many pages in mine um, as well. I literally i think every single page there's something that I, i'm like i need to remember this so some of you guys really understood the assignment i don't know <laughs> if you've heard that song but you all really understood the assignment and i did go ahead and make a list um, of folks that had followed the rules for the giveaway and then uh, after today's show here i can announce that our winner of a signed copy of Run, Improve, Grow is going to Hank Priam. So Hank, thank you so much for your, uh, your support, for following the giveaway rules and for being here today. We really appreciate it. And Ray is going to mail you a signed copy. So if you will DM me your address or if you wanna set something up, where I can get that information from you. I will pass it on to Ray and Ray will send you his signed copy from his bookshelf back there. So congratulations. 
Yay. And Ray, finally, before we end the show today, what is the best way for people to contact you? Do you prefer LinkedIn, email? What's, how, how do we connect you with the Greater Manufacturing Collective? So LinkedIn is my preferred approach. I do have a Twitter account, but LinkedIn is 99% of my connections at this point. Excellent. So you just want people to send you a LinkedIn request and Absolutely. just say, Hey, I saw you on uh, workforce 4.0 I'd love to connect. And then if there's any other questions that they have, they're welcome to do that. And I, and that if I have, you know, to 30 seconds here, one of the questions that was come up, I think I answered it improperly, but the question about safety from freedom of making mistakes, uh, great point. Yes. You want to create an environment where people feel psychologically safe. There's as an Amy, I can't remember her last name, but she writes a book about psychological safety. This is all about creating a safe, psychologically safe work environment where you're allowed to be free, try new things and know that you're supported and you feel connected. So thank you for uh, that clarifying point. And thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you, Ray. I really, really appreciate it. This has been an absolute experience for me, like such a great experience for me. And I appreciate your time and everybody that came in.